All right, so tonight we will move through what I consider to be the heart of the Savior Psalms. And from my perspective, we need to do these three together and walk through them together. We've already been in the middle. That was on Sunday when we did the 23rd Psalm. But all of these taken together paint such an amazing picture. It's a Psalm trilogy of the Savior, Shepherd, Sovereign King. And so we begin in Psalm 22. If you're not there, go ahead and turn there. The 22nd Psalm, often referred to as the Psalm of the Cross. And I promise you, if you will just stay with me, by the time we're done and you're exiting tonight, you will be greatly encouraged. Psalm 22. We begin here with what is the psalm of the Good Shepherd. Remember, the Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's, that's what characterizes the, the action of the Good Shepherd. And this is his psalm, Psalm 22. And before we even get to verse 1, you might notice there's an interesting heading. Occasionally there is that, more than just a psalm of David. In the NASB it says, Upon Ayelet HaShachar, some of your Bibles may already have that translated, may say something like, Upon the Doe of the Dawn, or the Hind of the Morning. And that's what Ayelet HaShachar means in the Hebrew. Literally, upon the hind of the morning, the doe or the, or the deer of the morning. And so because of that, there, there are scholars who read this and they say, okay, well, that's a, it was a type of, of music, perhaps even a song by that title that David used and said, I'm writing new words or I'm writing my own poetic words to this song. This is the melody that I want to go with this. And that's possible. But more likely, it suggests a theme. A theme. Because that word ayelet that is translated hind or doe or deer can also be translated strength or help. Upon the strength of the morning. How many times have you gone to bed at night discouraged or depressed or just flat out worried but you wake up in the morning and you got a whole day? You wake up and and it's like, okay, we can do something now. I have some rest behind me. I have some strength in me. So this is upon the strength of the morning. And I believe that that's a a legitimate way to view this. The strength of the dawn. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And we all have that in us. There's something in the internal clock of humans where as the sun is coming up, it's a new day, it's new beginning. His mercies are new every morning, right? So that's where this psalm is coming from. But what's amazing is that whether it's a song, a melody, or a strength, we know it was in the morning when Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, when He said... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Actually, let's be clear. He didn't say that in the morning. He was crucified in the morning, but Mark 15, 34 tells us at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translated means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he quotes directly from the very first line of the psalm, but it wasn't until the ninth hour. The ninth hour is 3 p.m., So at three in the afternoon, he cries out the first words of the psalm upon the strength or hind of the morning. And it wasn't morning when he shares this line. Why? 
Well, it's very simple that Jesus waited until afternoon that he might encapsulate all that had taken place since the hind of the morning, since the morning hours, all the six hours. Jesus was on the cross for six hours from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. And at 3 p.m. he cried out this very line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The gospel, according to Matthew, chapter 27, verses 45 and 46, confirms both the time and the heartful cry of Jesus that he was crucified, nailed up at 9 a.m. And then six hours later, he makes this cry as if to say these last six hours are encapsulated in this psalm, in this teaching. You see, you hear, you read of everything that has just taken place across these six hours. And what's remarkable about this, and Mike, where are you? We were just talking about this. People want proof. People want facts. Just give me the facts. Well, here's one for you. Here is a psalm that reads like a history of the crucifixion, but was written a thousand years before it happened. And not only that, the Persians invented crucifixion. The Romans perfected it as as a tool of punishing execution. But Psalm 22 is the first historical description we have of crucifixion. This song, written by David, so around 1000 BC, this song is the first description of someone being pierced, of someone being nailed up, of the things that you will see as we go through that are so graphic and evident of A crucifixion. The next time we hear of it from an historical perspective, it's written down by Herodotus, who described it as a Persian practice in 479 BC. So David writes about it. Over 500 years go by, Herodotus writes about it actually happening. And then another 479 years, 500 years actually will go by, and Jesus is crucified, as David described. Again, a thousand years before. David wrote with painstakingly graphic detail. And so, so one of the things, and there are a couple of things Jesus is doing, in quoting from the first verse of this psalm, one of the things he's doing, like any good rabbi, is directing his students to the book or scroll of his teaching. And this is how they did it. They didn't have verses, they didn't have chapters, so they couldn't say, turn to Psalm 22. They would say, turn to my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the students would know that's the psalm in the scroll that begins with that line. Jesus is directing to this psalm. Ever the teacher, he directs from the cross. Kidner says no Christian can read this without being vividly confronted with the crucifixion. It's not only a matter of prophecy minutely fulfilled, but of the sufferer's humility. There is no plea here for vengeance. And his vision, in addition to the crucifixion, his vision of a worldwide ingathering of both Jews and Gentiles, no incident recorded in the life of David can begin to account for this. David is writing of something vastly beyond himself, something that he would never see or experience, either in crucifixion or in the gathering of the people of the nations of the world. That wasn't a Davidic experience. So what he's writing of here is is of amazing prophecy. And it's what Jesus says from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. 
Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. And because of this cry, listen, this is critically important. Because of this cry, popular Christian thought assumes that Jesus was separated from God at Calvary. And I suggest to you no such thing. In fact, I am more sure of it now than I was when we talked about this in our Revelation study. You may recall I brought this up a couple of times. Because the Bible tells us God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5.16, that it was God on the cross. So how could God be separated from, how could God forsake Jesus if God is on the cross? But you might say, well, but Rick, I also understand that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So perhaps God the Father turns His back on Jesus on the cross. I completely disagree. I do not believe there has been a time in all of eternity where God turned His back on Jesus. Or any person of the Godhood, Godhead of the Trinity turned their back on either of the others. I don't accept that. And I know there are songs written about it. And I know it makes for emotional Christian preaching. You know, it was a moment of such darkness and Jesus was all alone on the cross. Even God the Father turned His back. And that's not what the Bible teaches. And I will prove it to you a little later on tonight. But with that, I will concede that the human nature of Jesus, no doubt, listen, no doubt, felt forsaken. Jesus in flesh felt forsaken, though he was not. And so even to quote this psalm, directing us to this psalm for our understanding of what was taking place on the cross of Calvary, Jesus felt what he was saying. Absolutely. And this is the marvelous dynamic of the Son of God who is also the Son of Man. That Jesus felt in His flesh the things we feel in our flesh while knowing in His Spirit all that Jesus would know in His Spirit. While understanding absolutely what the truth is, totally divine, yet absolutely in touch with human emotion and feeling and pain. Have you ever felt forsaken? Have you ever felt betrayed? Have you ever felt alone only to realize I'm really not, but man, it feels that way. Let me just say this as a side note. We live in a culture and a society that is embracing feeling over fact on a daily basis. Everything is based on how you feel. It doesn't matter what the facts are. It doesn't matter what the truth is. It's how do you feel? And however you feel, that's how you are. And that's the truth. So all, all truth, all uh, substance is based on this flimsy thing called feeling and emotion. And feeling and emotion is as dangerous as a bad food day. I mean, maybe you just haven't eaten well. I've shared this before. I mean, you can, you can eat sugar for breakfast and in, an, in an hour feel completely forsaken by the world. <laughs> it's just the food going through your body. You can have incidences happen and, and misunderstand something and feel a certain way. And that's not the truth at all. And the truth is, well, yes, I believe Jesus felt in his human emotion, felt forsaken. He also knew he was not forsaken. That that's not what the truth 
is, not what the truth was. Jesus can say to you tonight, I know how you feel. I know when you feel alone. I know what that feels like. I know when you feel forsaken, when you feel betrayed, when you feel hurt, when you feel like nobody understands you. I get that because I put on flesh and dwelt among you. So I have felt what you feel. But don't be, don't be deceived by your feelings. Because right away after expressing how he feels, we move immediately into this confident truth, verse 3, yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, or you who inhabit the praises of your people. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Fact. To you they cried out and were delivered. Fact. In you they trusted and were not disappointed or ashamed. Fact. And so what the, the, the forsaken feeling man on the cross says here is, I feel this way and yet I know what the truth is. Forsaken is the feeling. Faithful is the truth. Certain and sure is the truth. Now note, he says, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, God inhabits worship. Which is why the best place to go when you're feeling forsaken or disappointed or ashamed or alone is worship. Because God inhabits worship. He's there in the praises of His people. When we feel forsaken, worship is our best response because worship reminds us that at the lowest ebb of human life, in the place of most dark feeling, in our greatest pain, in the dark before the dawn, God is holy and God is trustworthy. The Hebrew pastor writes in Hebrews 13.5, For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Ever since we ran across this in our study through Hebrews a few months back, Okay, a couple of years back, but a while ago. (laughs) Ever since we studied it, this verse has changed for me. When I realized that there are five negatives, one after the other, and you can literally translate this. He himself has said, I will not, cannot leave you. I will never, no, never forsake you. You can't get more emphatic than that. This is the God who does not forsake. I may feel forsaken, but he does not forsake. Truth, feeling. Understand which is going on. Verse 6. But I am a worm. (laughs) Ever felt like that? Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Think I'll eat some worms. No, he says, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. And this is fascinating. And you Bible students may be aware of this, but the anguished one speaks from the lowest position of anybody in all of history. This is how low Jesus went. This is the depth to which he sank so that he might save. I am a worm, he says. And it's the Greek word or the Hebrew word tola. I am the Tola worm. The Tola worm is a specific kind of worm. A crimson or scarlet worm, it was used in ancient Israel for a couple of things. Number one, it was used for natural dye. They literally would take these little wormy guys and they would ground them up and produce a scarlet-colored uh, colored pulp 
that was a dye worked into the fabric of garments. It was an expensive process, so typically it would be worn by a king or a nobleman. I'm sure they figured out how to get the smell out. I don't know. Kind of worm smell. It doesn't seem like a noble thing to me. But you would get a, a, a robe, sharp red or crimson color in the robes. And they got that dye from the tola worm because that's the color that would be produced by smashing these things up. But more interesting to me is not the natural dye, but the natural death of this worm and what took place. When it was time to reproduce, the tola would climb up the tree and out on a branch and attach itself to the branch of a tree. And then it would lay its eggs directly beneath its body, between its body and the tree. And the eggs would be in there, the larvae, and when they hatched, they literally would eat their way through the body of their mother. Sounds awful, sounds kind of gross. The mother died giving life to the child. That's how the Tola does, how it reproduces itself through its offspring. And then that scarlet residue of the worm now dead on the branch would dry, and when it dried, it would bleach white. And then it would flake off. How fascinating. What a picture. Jesus says, I'm the Tola. I am a worm. Not a man. I'm a worm. I'm the Tola worm. Isaiah 1.18 Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And it's a beautiful, stunning, debased picture. I am that worm, the crucified one says. And through blood-blurred eyes on the cross, he says, all who see me, verse 7, will sneer at me. They separate with the lip, which simply means means they make mouths at me. You know, they're just making faces. They wag the head. They say, verse 8, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. David wrote down exactly what Jesus heard. Exactly. It's one of those divine ironies, those the dark ironies of, of Scripture. We read about this in Matthew 27. You can just listen to this or you can turn there if you're a fast turner. Matthew 27, verse 39 says, Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. And then they literally quoted Psalm 22, verse 8. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Now, if he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Mark 15. Luke 23, confirm this exact behavior. Psalm 22 pre-quotes a thousand years ahead of time the very mockers who now cluelessly quote Psalm 22 at the cross. David writes, this is what they say. They sneer at me. They divide the lip. They say, let him rescue him because he delights in him. And a thousand years later, that's exactly what the chief priest said. Idiots! Don't they realize they're playing into prophecy? Don't they realize what they're saying? They don't know what they're saying. People rarely know what they're saying when they speak without faith. And these guys are mocking and scorning Jesus, and they're just spouting what comes to mind. And what came to mind was Scripture. 
I would have loved to have been there and just said, you know, you just quoted Psalm 22.8. Just saying. (laughs) Unbelievable. Verse 9. Yet... You you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth, or literally I was cast from the womb. You have been my God from my mother's womb. I love the song we just sang, that, that last song. It's not my life to live. It's, it's, this is not my life to live, it's his. I've given it to him because he gave it to me first. That's not my life to live. I live it for Him. When did Jesus know He was Messiah? That's the debate among people who debate about things like that, I guess. Fools who have tried to propose that He he realized it later in life. You know, maybe He turned around 30 and went, Hey! Hey! Maybe it's me! He performs a miracle. Wow! There's something special about me. I wonder if I, if you ever saw that horrible movie and it was badly acted and badly filmed and badly scripted and the whole thing was just bad. <laughs> the Last Temptation of Christ. The whole thing was based on Jesus figuring out he's the Messiah as an adult. It starts to hit him. You know? Played by William Defoe. I mean, Willem. Sorry, Willem Defoe. It's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I saw it just out of curiosity. Kind of sick curiosity. I knew this was something I probably didn't need to see. Anyway. Yeah, it's Jesus figuring it out. Oh, maybe I'm here. You know what? We're told, clearly, He knew in the womb. I would suggest to you there is was never a time when Jesus didn't know He was God. Never a time. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He always knew who He was, who God was. Who He is now, who God is. There's never a time Jesus was absent that. Yes, He was an infant in the womb. Yes, He grew up as a child. Yes, He set aside divine glory. But He knew. He knew who He was. Which presents all kinds of interesting thoughts that I'll leave to you. Verse 11. Be not far from Me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded Me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Interesting, there are many animals that are listed in this psalm. And this is the first, the bulls of Bashan. Before David's time and on through David's time in the region of Gilead in the Middle East, the bulls of Bashan were these wild-horned bulls and they were worshipped by Canaanites. You can read this in ancient texts, you can read this in old histories, that the Canaanites believed that these bulls were gods. Why would you believe that? I don't know, but maybe someone got someone in their family got gored and they thought, I better worship this. Very strange. They believed that they were gods. You know what, what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God or to gods. They think they're sacrificing to gods. They think they're sacrificing to these high spiritual beings. But in reality, Paul says they're just sacrificing to demons. Whether the name is Baal or Allah, they're sacrificing to demons. They are not God. It's just demonic presence. And the Canaanites believed this, that these bulls of Bashan were gods. This allusion to the bulls of Bashan in Psalm 22, I believe personally, is to demons. Now when he says the bulls of Bashan have encircled me, he picks an animal that was idolized by a people 
to describe demonic things. And it makes you wonder, as Jesus is on the cross, did he see? Was he aware? And I think he was of the demonic attack that was swirling and whirling, the spiritual fracas, the hysterical, agitated demons all around him that we don't see in the gospel accounts. We see the people, we see venomous chief priests and elders, and we see wicked Romans. But at the same time all that was going on at the cross, if, you could, if we could look through a different lens, through God's lens, and see what was happening in the spirit realm around the cross, I think we would be terrified. Bulls of Bashan. I think that's what Jesus may very well be referring to here. Verse 13, they open wide their mouth at me. Note this as a ravening and a roaring lion. What do demons ascribe themselves to? Satan. Satan described, 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So again, the devil was there. The demons are there. All evil pitted against the possibility of a Messiah for Israel in that moment around the cross. And if you want to know, by the way, you want to know what the devil's end game is with everything? Look at the cross. That's it. That's the final picture. You know, when he comes along and he offers something that seems so sweet, so tantalizing, so alluring and attractive, if you could look through that to the end game, it's the cross. The final place is he wants to crucify you. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's it. There is no grace in there. It is all about utter destruction. And Jesus saw this. The the mocking of man, the derision of demons, the scorn of Satan himself. He saw it, felt it all at the cross. And now we get into the actual physical experience. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. I am, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. The cross has been estimated to have had a weight of about 300 pounds. The the beam of the cross, the cross beam and the actual uh, cross piece itself put together, about 300 pounds is estimated. And then you add another 150 to 170 pounds for Jesus nailed up on the cross. What do you think dropping a cross with Jesus nailed to it into a three to four foot post hole would do to his joints? My bones are out of joint. He says in verse 14. Poured out like water. My heart is like wax melted within me. Note this. Throughout the psalm, but also throughout the gospel accounts, while all of this went down, you don't see anger in Jesus. You don't see spite. You don't hear cries of vengeance. Jesus was heartbroken. Mike, maybe that's another answer to your question earlier. How do we respond to a world that just seems so sick and, and, and that can be so discouraging and people who are so negative and so opposed even to, to Jesus or the gospel? You know how Jesus responded? He was heartbroken because he loved so deeply. In fact, it said he died of a broken heart. John 19.34 says one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out and medically that signifies a burst heart. The blood and water rushing out together. 1 John 5, 6, 
John, remembering that, recalling that, writes, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Or not with the water only, that would be the fluids of birth, but with water and the blood, which were the fluids of His death. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth, John says. So I saw, I was there, I saw the Spirit go in. I saw the blood and water come out and the Spirit testifies that this happened, this is true. What John's saying there is He died. I saw Him dead. And the proof was in the blood and in the water. And yet remarkably... The result of the death of Jesus is our birth. The fluids of His death become the fluids of our birth, being born again to eternal life. Remember the Tola worm dying for the life of its young. Jesus Christ did the same in dying for the life of people who believe in Him. Born again. Blood and water flowing from His side. 1 John 5, verse 7, John says again, there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood and the three are in agreement. And John, when he writes, he sees our spiritual birth in Jesus' actual death. As this flowed from His side, you can make the comparison to the first Adam, that Eve was the bride from Adam's side. And so the church... Is born of the Spirit as the blood and water flowed from the side of Arbitro, the Devar groom. Verse 15. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. You know, it's interesting in Israel, you can see those all over the place. Pottery everywhere, and especially if you go to areas that there are archaeological digs going on, there's just smashed little little bits everywhere. I mean, you walk on it and you start to think this is just the this is just the ground. Well, it's it's pottery, it's broken shards. You can find little handles and it's fascinating. But they're all dried up and sunbaked. And he says, this is how I feel. Just dried up. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And then he says, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And I already described to you the Persian crucifixion of piercing and nailing someone up to a cross and the Romans took that and expanded it to be a horrific brutal punishing execution but he says dogs have surrounded me and to a Jew of the first century dogs are Gentiles what do we have so far then we have bulls we have a lion we have Gentile dogs and then he says a band of evil doers has encompassed me the Jews who are there Evildoers because they knew what was right and were not doing it. All of these are present at the crucifixion. And let me be absolutely clear, all are culpable for the cross. Jew and Gentile alike. And those over history have tried to blame the Jews. No, it was all of us. It was for the sake of all of our salvation that He died. It was... All humanity represented there at the cross. How much more detailed can David get? Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. After the scourging, it's said that bones would be visible. That you could count them. But I think there's something more than that. It's not just that Jesus is up there counting bones. It's that all his bones 
are accounted for. None were broken, none were chipped, none were harmed. His bones are all there. We talked about the Sunday, John 19.33, coming to Jesus, they saw He was already dead and they did not break His legs, which they had just done to the other two criminals. John 19.36, For these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture, not a bone of Him shall be broken. Now, the Scripture fulfilled is in part the Passover lamb. And again, Sunday we looked at that. Exodus 12, 46 said you shall not break any of the Passover lamb's bones. That was a a requirement of the offering. You don't break the bones. And so Jesus Christ, our Passover, none of his bones were broken. His bones all accounted for. But there's another psalm. I almost did this as a Savior psalm. I don't think we will, but I will notate this for you. Another psalm, Psalm 34, verses 19 and 20, which says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So we have both the Scripture of the Passover Lamb, and we have Psalm 34 saying, None of the bones are broken, neither the bones of the Lamb or the bones of the righteous. Which with me breaking fingers, I don't know what that says about my personal life. Let's not go there. Prophecy fulfilled. Prophecy fulfilled. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them are broken. I can count all my bones. And then he says, of course, they look. They they stare at me. One other thing about the bones. Medically, blood is is produced in the bone marrow. And the fact that the bones are not broken indicates something else spiritually for us that His unbroken bones will forever produce the blood of His grace. It never stops. The blood for your salvation and mine, there's always enough. Enough was given at the cross to cover, to wash, to cleanse, to keep you saved for all eternity. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Well, verse 18, They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. You may recall the scene. Matthew 27.35 The Romans are down there doing this very thing. And again, I'd love to just open up a Bible and go, See what you're doing here? Prophecy fulfilled. You're playing into His hand. And it's exactly what they did. Not versed in Hebrew prophecy, they ignorantly played their part to the hilt. Verse 19, But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword. Soul is life. Deliver my life from the sword. My only life from the power of the dog or literally the paw of the dog. Deliver me from the paw of the dog, he says. To save me from the lion's mouth. There's the lion again. From the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. Now, if you're reading a King James translation, wild oxen is unicorn. Yeah, unicorn. I don't know if it's like a pink unicorn or a rainbow unicorn or what kind of unicorn we're talking about here, but the word is not unicorn. And it's interesting that it has to do with the Latin and where that translation worked through, but it's wild oxen. 
And it may even be an oxen similar to the bulls of Bashan, similar to these wild, ravenous oxen that used to run the plains in the Middle East. But he notates this once again, that these, wild you've saved me from the lion's mouth, the lion representative of Satan, and from the horns of the wild oxen, so those, that demonic presence and that wildness going on. And he says, note this, you answer me. You answer me. The idea is that salvation, salvation is far greater than physical death. And here at the turning point, Jesus' concern is spiritual. You answer me. You see what's going on, all that's going on, and you answer me. And it's in the perfect tense that Jesus says you answer me, which the perfect tense means it has happened, it is happening, and it will always happen. One of the hints about God never turning away from Jesus is, you have answered me, you are answering me, you will answer me. And I suggest to you that that's how God responds to your prayers. He has answered. He will answer. He is answering. He doesn't miss it. You are not forsaken. You are not left to your own thoughts. He hears you. He hears you. And here we hear Jesus. In fact, this is what I call the bright turning point in the psalm because suddenly we hear Him realizing, recognizing, stating the truth. He hinted at it in the first couple of verses 3, 4, 5 at the very beginning that I know you are faithful because of our fathers, my fathers to the past. But now, now I'm declaring you answer me. You do. He says, I will tell of your name to my brethren, verse 22. In the midst of the assembly, of the assembly, I will praise you. Just listen to this, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. If Jesus was here right now, he'd look at you and say, brothers and sisters, listen to this saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Psalm 22, verse 22. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me, Jesus says. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And verse 22 is that declaration. I will tell your name to my brethren. When would he do that? After the resurrection. So what's just changed here is we've come through the crucifixion and beginning with verse 22, we're coming out of the grave. Jesus is rising from the dead. I will tell of your name. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And note, by the way, that he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. That's what it said in verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 2. Listen, you who fear the Lord, verse 23, praise him. All you descendants, 
of Jacob glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. Jesus says, I'm going to proclaim you to my brethren. And first and foremost among his brethren were Jews. In fact, Paul said it clearly in him, or he said, uh, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So this message of the gospel, of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, goes first to the Jew, but hold that thought. Verse 24, For he has not despised, nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, Nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him for help, he heard him, and there it is. There's your absolute verification that God never turned his back on Jesus at the cross. Let me read it to you again. Nor has he hidden his face from him. That has not happened. Camerly pointed out earlier today, Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, We esteemed him afflicted of God. That was our perspective. We looked at Jesus on the cross and said, Oh, God must have forsaken him. But he didn't. There was never a time when God turned his face. He has not hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. Jesus was heard. In his flesh, he felt forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he knew in his spirit he was not And you might want to circle verse 24 of Psalm 22 and say, there's the linchpin, there's the absolute. This is how we know God never turned His back on Jesus because He doesn't do that to the afflicted. And I'm so thankful for that. I mean, this this proves it. Hebrews 5, 7, we read on Sunday, says, in the days of His flesh, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His piety. God did not hide His face from Jesus. And listen, if God hid His face from Christ at the cross because of sin, I'm lost. I'm lost. So are you. If he can't look upon sin, where's our hope? We say God is light and in him there is no darkness. Agree. There's no sin in God. He's absolute perfection. But to say that God who is absolute perfection cannot look upon sin is to say we're hopeless. It's not true. God not only looked upon sin, he took sin upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. No, Jesus was not forsaken. And no, neither are you. Neither are you. Verse 25 From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear Him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. And i got to point this out. This is the free will offering He's talking about. Seems strange in the middle of the Psalm of the Cross that all of a sudden He says, I shall pay my vows before those who fear Him and the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. So what's this about? The afflicted is the crucified one. This is Jesus. And He's saying, I will pay my vows and then I'm going to have dinner. What? It's very simple. The free will offering, called sometimes the the votive offering, 
was when someone said, I just want to give something to God. I want to bring of the firstlings of my flock. It's not a requirement. It's not, this is not Passover. This is not one of the other feasts. This isn't a requirement. I'm not giving a sin offering. I just want to give. I just feel like giving to the Lord. And so you could bring of the firstlings of your flock or you could bring something that you're going to offer at the temple. And the way this worked, Leviticus 7.16, if the sacrifice for his offering is a votive or free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day of his, that he offers sacrifice. And on the next day, what's left of it may be eaten. So it's like you get Thanksgiving because it was often a thank offering and then you get the leftovers the next day. Which is the way my family loves to do Thanksgiving. We'll buy extra turkey just so we can have leftovers, you know. And this is what he's talking about. He's saying, I will make my vow, I'll pay my vow before him, and then the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. I'm going to make a vow, I vow to give a sacrifice, he says. And then he goes through with the sacrifice. And then after the sacrifice, a feast. See the picture? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, which deals with another Savior psalm we'll we'll come to in a bit, not tonight. When He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices of sin, or for sin, you, you have taken no pleasure. Jesus says, But My body, I vow, My body will be the sacrifice. How then could His body be the sacrifice, but then the next day He gets to eat and be satisfied? Resurrection. Resurrection And the vow of Christ, I suggest taken in the garden, when He said, not by will, but yours be done. That vow He fulfilled in the sacrifice of the cross. And now, Jesus calls for a feast. I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until we gather together in my Father's kingdom. Then the feast is going to come. Verse 29, All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust before Him, even He who cannot keep His soul alive. All the prosperous of the earth. Prosperous of the earth means, and I'm just describing, I'm just giving the exact translation here, fat ones. That's it. The The implication here is those who are stuffed with song. Plump with praise. Rotund with rejoicing. (laughs) This is a people full of the Lord. And full of the joy of the Lord. And that's what he describes. Anna Marie right now, you know, Anna Marie and Michael are in Ghana. And one of the really interesting things to me culturally is a woman in Ghana, if she's plump, that's a healthy woman. Yeah? (laughs) And so Anna Marie, I mean, literally, because if you've seen my daughter Anna Marie... I mean, she's she's a rail. She's like Twiggy. Those of you who remember long ago. Very, very skinny. She just And she's like, I'm just so skinny. I'm just not a beautiful woman. I'm like, are you kidding me? She's gorgeous. Takes after my side of the family. <laughs> no, she's beautiful. She's tall. She, she's slender. And in Anna Marie's thinking, in her mind, when she looks at, at a woman, if a woman's plump, she goes, that's, that's beautiful. There is a beauty here in the, the prosperous, the, the stuffed, those who are full of the joy of the Lord. This is beautiful to the Lord. Okay, I've spent enough time on that. Verse 30, <laughs> posterity will serve Him. You might notate that, literally seed. A seed will serve Him. That is the seed of faith. Those who are born again, this, this, 
new miraculous seed of people. And it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that He has performed it. Psalm 102 verse 18. This will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. And there are hints of the millennial kingdom here. That coming through the crucifixion and into the resurrection, the sacrifice offered of the vow that was made and the feast now to come and it's going to be told again and again and again and I think about that, I will tell the old, old story. It's one of the old hymns I love. Tell us the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell us the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Or tell the old, old story. I remember the old, old women in my church singing that. Little cracked voices and I just got into my head, you know. The old story will be told again and again into the millennial kingdom and on into eternity what Jesus Christ did. And this is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And Psalm 22 ends with this declaration of resurrection. But it's just the beginning. Because... The Lord, the good shepherd who died, rose again to become, Psalm 23, the Lord my shepherd. For the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside restful waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and grace, loving kindness, will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The good shepherd of the cross, Psalm 22. My shepherd who leads with the staff of comfort. The rod of strength, Psalm 23. And where is he leading? Right into Psalm 24, which brings us to the third and final psalm of the trilogy. The psalm of the chief shepherd's crown. Like John Corson puts it this way. You've got the psalm of the cross, the psalm of the crook, shepherd's crook, and the psalm of the crown. And I like that, and it works well together. Psalm 24, verse 1. Hang on with me as we go for a final ride. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And the world and those who dwell in it. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And that's creation correct, by the way. We'll discover this if you go back to Genesis chapter 1. You discover that's exactly what happened. That the earth was founded on the waters. And then once the waters were receded and put in their places, the seas and the rivers, that the dry land that was created, and what happened after that? It sprouted to life. Which is an interesting thought if it's a parallel to baptism. That life was founded upon the waters. The waters were there first, and then God brought life through. And same with baptism. We, we are baptized to reflect, to signify a new life that has begun. But note this, and we won't need to take as long with Psalm 24 because it's so obvious as we did with Psalm 22, which was also obvious. But watch this, as you read Psalm 24, there is a royal trajectory to this psalm. It is literally a psalm of the procession of the King of Kings. And I'll tell you the trajectory ahead of time, it's Jesus coming down to the earth 
And then it's Jesus up into the hill of Zion up to Jerusalem. He comes down and He goes up. And that's why we begin with the earth that's the Lord's and, and, and the world. Earth is Eretz. Like Eretz Israel, the, the, the true Hebrew name for the state of Israel. Eretz, the earth, the, the, the earth is the land, is the Lord's. It all belongs to Him. And then the world means the inhabited world. So it speaks of humanity. And it all belongs to the Lord. Founded upon the seas, established upon the rivers. So He comes down to this world, verse 3, and He begins to go up. But who may ascend? Into the hill of the Lord. Who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Can anyone in here say that you fit all those? Verse 5. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. This is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, even Yaakov. The generation even of Yaakov is seeking your face. Whose face? The one who comes down to the earth and now goes up. Josephus and uh, Jewish tradition tells us that David composed this psalm. We see that it's a psalm of David at the, at the heading. But they say it was composed in two parts for a very specific time. The two parts of the first six verses and then the last four, seven, eight, nine, and ten end up. So it's, it's like a, a song in, in two uh, parts. And it was composed, it's believed, and it's been passed on traditionally for thousands of years, that it was, it was composed for David's second attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem, up to the whole, up the Holy Hill, up to Mount Moriah, to be settled there. You may recall the first try was an Uzzah failure. An Uzzah failure. Second Samuel 6 verses 1 through 8. Do you remember what happened? They put the ark on a cart and started to haul it up there and a guy named Uzzah is standing by the cart and the cart bumps and the ark starts to fall and Uzzah reaches out and touches it and dies immediately. An Uzzah failure. Uzzah failure. Thank you. The second time, the second time, David traded in human effort for holy exercise. He did it right. And you can read the story, 2 Samuel chapter 6, but verses 13 through 15 describe coming up to Jerusalem, bringing up the ark. They put the poles in, in the holders like you're supposed to. The priests carried it. They walked six steps, steps, stopped, and offered sacrifice. And then they walked six more steps, stopped, and offered sacrifice. Six being the number of a man. It's as far as we can go before worshiping. And they kept walking six steps, stop, sacrifice, six steps, stop, sacrifice. And within all that, David's just praising the Lord. The Bible tells us he has on a linen ephod, which he wasn't all undressed. All right? It's interesting because when he gets home later that night, his wife, Michael, says, How you've uncovered yourself in front of all the women of Israel. And so people go, Oh, so maybe he was undressed. No, she was embarrassed that he wasn't acting like a king. You've uncovered your humanity. You were not royal out there. What was David? A worshiper. Dressed in linen like the priest. 
and dancing with all his heart before the Lord as six steps sacrifice. And they walked it up there carrying the ark. It's a beautiful, marvelous scene. Shouts of praise. The shofar was blasting. And what were they shouting? Psalm 24. Psalm 24. This was the song that they were singing. Josephus said that it involved seven choirs of singers and musicians surrounding this coming up and leading the worship for all the people as they shouted with joy and praise. So a great company of worshipers singing Psalm 24. Because David learned you don't just go marching up Holy Hill with dirty hands. You don't just head up there. How often do we just head up to meet God and our hearts are filthy? We haven't even taken time to repent, to seek His loving kindness and His forgiveness for how we've been living, what we've been doing. No, we go rushing up Holy Hill with dirty hands, false motives, deceitful swearing. You can't go up the hill. You can't go up to Jerusalem that way. How do you go up to Jerusalem? Ask some Jewish people and they would say the only way really to make Aliyah is to be Jewish. By the way, that's that's the word, verse 3, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord. It's who may make aliyah, aliyah, which is that Hebrew word for going up. And these days, what Jewish people will do is they'll make aliyah to Israel. It's a very Jewish phrase. If you say that to a Jewish person, they'll immediately know what you're talking about. Oh, you're talking about going up to Jerusalem. You're talking about going back to the Holy Land to reside, to, to become an Israeli citizen. You're making aliyah. They make the aliyah to go up. But it takes a whole lot more than heritage to go up the hill of the Lord. The mountain of the Lord. What verse 4 describes and what we see in Jesus is pure spiritual perfection. We can say it's a godly ambition to live a holy life. But the humble heart recognizes this. Only Jesus ever has. So, in all honesty, if you're just looking at verses 3 and 4, who may make Aaliyah into the hill of the Lord and stand in His holy place? Only Jesus. He's the only one with the clean hands and the pure heart who has not lifted up His soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. My point is this. Psalm 24, the procession of this king is His procession. This is not the procession of David. David's hands were not clean and he knew it. This is not the procession of any king of Israel. None of them had clean hands. The only king who this psalm can be about is King Jesus making his procession and going up. And note that right after verse 6, in the first half of this song, is a Selah. Now, Selah appears several times before this in the Psalms. In fact, 73 times the word Selah is used in the Psalms. And it's already been seen, though we haven't seen it or noted it in the Savior Psalms yet. So this is the first time we're seeing it in a Savior Psalm, Selah. And the Selah, if you have studied these things, we're not exactly sure what it means. But it appears to mean an interlude of some kind. I prefer to think of it as an instrumental rest. That we pause, kind of like in our times of worship, and, and we stop singing, and the worship team is still playing. And if you're, if you're in that place where the singing has stopped and they're playing, use the Selah to worship more deeply. 
to use the Selah, the pause, the musical pause, just to be continue singing in your heart to the Lord, to, to enter into prayer, to pray in the Spirit, just to, to be in His presence. That's the idea, I believe, behind the Selahs throughout the Psalms. Here's the information. Here are the thoughts. Here's the poetry. Here's the inclination or the indication. Now, now, soak it in. Consider what's been sung. And so we've already had this. This king comes down to the earth, ascends the Lord. He who has clean hands, the pure heart. He receives the blessing from the Lord, righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation. Now we're seeking him. We want to follow him. Pause. Think about that. And then lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And so what happens here in the Solomon is just beautiful. This is the Ancient of Days. But it says, be lifted up, O ancient doors. O ancient doors. You need to know that ancient doesn't just mean ancient. The word is olam in the Hebrew, and it's not just ancient as in antiquity, but it's ancient as in everlasting. And what David is implying here in the lifting up of the ancient doors, he's talking about the gates of his eternal kingdom. Be lifted up. Oh, ancient doors is to say, be lifted up. Eternal doors to the eternal kingdom. He knew God promised to put a son of his on his throne forever. And so the lifting up of these ancient doors is a lifting up of eternity coming into the eternal kingdom. But you might ask, why does David repeat the refrain? We see it twice, verses 7 and 8, and then repeat it again in verses 9 and 10. He doesn't repeat the refrain. The reality is, verses 7 and 8, he says, Who is the king of glory? The Lord. And then in verses 9 and 10, he says, Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. So it's not an exact repeat. But it's also intentional, because the first refrain speaks of Jesus in his first coming. Who's the king of glory? The Lord. Our Lord Jesus in His first coming. The second refrain speaks of His second coming because when He returns, He doesn't just come back by Himself, does He? It's not just the Lord, it's the Lord of hosts. Because when He returns, Revelation 19, He returns with a host. And think about this, as David came up praising God, wearing the linen ephod, singing this psalm, so we're going to follow Jesus going up to Jerusalem wearing what? Fine linen, white and clean. Revelation 19, 14, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, following Him on white horses. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Guess who the host is in the psalm? It's you. And it's me following Him in. And man, those ancient gates, those eternal doors will be lifted up and Jesus will march right in to Zion. Know where the ancient doors are right now? <laughs> About 10 feet underground. If you've been with us to the land, you've, you've seen, we've talked about this. I love this story. I'll share it again. In 1969, 
archaeologist James Fleming was surveying the area right in front of the eastern gate of the Temple Mount. If you've seen pictures of the Temple Mount looking from the Mount of Olives, and often groups like to take pictures up on the Mount of Olives with the Temple Mount there across the Cadron Valley spread out behind, behind them, and there's that huge wall and there's that big, massive eastern gate. And everybody looks at that eastern gate and says, whoa, that's just great. And it's somewhat of a facade. I mean, it's all walled up. There's no going through that gate. And so people wonder, well, is that the gate? And why does David say be lifted up? Is this just a, a moment of praise and glory be lifted up? Listen, so James Fleming is out there. 1969, he's digging around in front of, when you could do these things, in front of the eastern gate, just outside the wall. And as he's digging, it had rained heavily the night before. The ground was soggy and saturated, and all of a sudden it gave way. James Fleming fell about 8 to 10 feet down into a huge cavern and realized he was instantly knee-deep in bones. And he's standing there looking around, and and he wrote, literally, and I'll tell you, this is quoting him, from Biblical Archaeological Review, January, February, 1983, page 30, if you'd like to look it up. He said, I noticed with astonishment that on the eastern face of the turret wall, directly beneath the golden gate itself, were five wedge-shaped stones neatly set in a massive arch spanning the turret wall. The remains of the earlier gate to Jerusalem, directly beneath the golden gate, one that apparently had never fully been documented. Soon after Fleming's discovery, he gets out of there, he writes this down. As soon as the Muslim authority learned about this, they covered the chamber, cemented over the top, and surrounded the mass grave with an iron fence. And it's there to this day, that iron fence in front of the eastern gate. (laughs) That'll stop him from coming through. (laughs) Lift up your heads. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. There will be massive topographical changes in the tribulation. We studied this through Revelation recently. Five different massive global earthquakes are described. Just tearing up the land, changing the landscape. And I believe at that time, in the last earthquake, (laughs) the ancient doors will be lifted up. Now, it's just one man's opinion, but it fits the Scripture. Isaiah 40, verse 4, Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 10, All the land will be changed into a plain, from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem, note this, Jerusalem will rise. And remain on its site. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And guess what? Then we rest. Selah. Psalm ends with a rest, with a pause. How many of you after we finished the Revelation study a few weeks back, experienced a little bit of letdown. <laughs> Deb's going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I did. I did. I mean, literally, the, I, I took the Wednesday off following our last Sunday teaching, and, and Cheryl and I got away, and even as we were away for a few days, I'm thinking, <sighs> at first I thought I was just, you know, tired. And then I started to realize I'm a little bummed. Because I had really hoped... 
I had, and I'll, I'll show you what I had hoped exactly. I had hoped I would read. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord. That's what I was hoping for. I didn't even want to get to verse 21. Then I thought, as we got there in the study, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Nothing. We're still here. I, I must have must have missed it somewhere. No, here's the thing. If you've ever felt that, I mean, this summer we're in a Selah. And I believe it was God ordained for us, for our fellowship to be in the Savior Psalms. Man, you go up. It's marvelous. It's wonderful. I think we're going to have this same experience coming into the kingdom. We ride. We come back with Jesus. We arrive. We go up to Jerusalem. We go through the gates as they're lifted up. It's a marvelous, exciting, amazing time. And guess what? Then we rest. Selah. And all the stress and all the worry and all the fear and everything that upsets you right now and everything that comes against you in this world and all the things that would discourage you today, done. It's over. Selah. Daniel even describes in between the coming of Jesus and the literal beginning of the millennial kingdom, there's a span of time. There are extra days. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 12. It's interesting. Extra days. There's a pause between the coming of the Lord of hosts and the beginning of the kingdom. Right in there. What is that pause? Selah. Let's rest for a second. Let's consider what has taken place. And so what I suggest to you this summer is rest. Don't get sleepy. Don't don't stop believing. Thank you, Steve Perry. <laughs> don't slow down. Just just say law. Consider Les was saying this earlier today, and I I'm going back over Revelation now. Good. Say law. Pause in the instrumental moment and consider what we've learned. Consider what we've we've heard, and even with this Shepherd Psalm trilogy, follow the Good Shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Follow the Lord my Shepherd through the valley of the shadow of death, and you will follow the Chief Shepherd coming down from heaven and going up Holy Hill. And it will be marvelous. Be encouraged. The Lord is my Shepherd. That's where we are. But we're going to come up and out of this valley and at a day not too far off. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word to us tonight. Thank you for these three psalms back to back to back and how beautiful they are. The remarkable sacrifice. Lord, you, you show us how you feel, how you felt, even as we feel. So we come out of Psalm 22 recognizing you know what it feels like to live in this world and and be brutalized in it. You know what it feels like to be a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. So we know, Lord of Psalm 22, you know how we feel. And yet, you bound yourself to truth. And Lord, we are so thankful that you are our shepherd. You're my shepherd, Lord of Psalm 23. Which means the God who knows how I feel walks with me right now. Does not leave me or forsake me, but you are with me. 
Your rod and your staff, they come for me. You are leading us right now today. You're present with us. And you are the chief shepherd of Psalm 24 with the guarantee not only that you're going to go up to Jerusalem, but you will go up as the Lord of hosts. And as your word declares, we get to be that host. What a powerful reality. And so I pray, encourage your people tonight, all of us together. Encourage us to follow you. Encourage us in a season of rest. Encourage us to say law and consider all that you've said and all that you've done and all that it means. For there are exciting times ahead of us. And Jesus, you've done it all. So we offer praise and honor and glory to the name of Jesus Christ tonight. And we pray, Lord, would you just one more time here come and inhabit the praises of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship Him together.